Section 11 of G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns. The New Witness, 1919 to 1920. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1919 to 1920, by G. K. Chesterton, Section 11, The Fastidious Futurist. At the sign of the world's end, the fastidious futurist. The narrowest thing in the world is novelty. Innovation wears thinner than imitation. So far from liberating the mind more and more, it limits the mind more and more. For mere innovation is mere elimination. Thus my well-wishers inform me that I am in need of a new hat. But if I insist on having a new hat in the extreme sense of an entirely novel hat, I shall find that my choice of hats is really extremely small. I must not have a tall hat because it resembles a top hat. I must not have a round hat because it resembles a bowler hat. I must not have a triangular hat because it is like an old three-cornered hat. If I turn up the brim on one side, I shall recall an old romantic picture of a brigand. If I turn it up on both sides, I shall convey the shocking suggestion of a bishop. If my hat has no brim, I shall be identified as the very image of a rabbi. If it has too many brims, it will approximate to the proverbial tiara of the old clothes man. And as I am a morbid and sanguinary anti-Semite, both of these resemblances will be distasteful. The most intelligent example I know of feminist freedom and the equality of the sexes may be seen when Arry and Ariot, those pioneers of the higher comradeship, change hats on a bank holiday. There is quite as much high philosophy in it as there is in shuffling the social functions of the sexes, in turning women into demagogues and men into pacifists. And there is much more high spirits in it than is common in feminist books and articles, and high spirits are things considerably higher than higher thought. In short, I think it much better that the sexes should change hats than that they should change heads. But my own peculiar problem of the hat of the future, the hat that never was on sea or land, cannot be solved even by a bank holiday on Hampstead Heath. My appearance in a lady's hat, fascinating and even striking as such an appearance might be, would not be, by the present definition, the appearance of a new hat. Wide and fresh as would be the new field of choice open to me, in the matters of flowers, ribbons, feathers, and such on it, it would only be the flowers that were fresh and not the hat that they adorned. That would still be subject to the laws of cut and pattern ruling the brigand and the bishop, and I should still suffer from the crowding competition of my fathers. It is obvious that in order to get a really original hat, I should have to act in a fashion that was fastidious as well as fantastic. I should have to seek out, so to speak, in some crooked street of some grotesque city, the original shop of the proverbial Mad Hatter. There may be a mathematical shape that has never yet been embodied in a hat, even in dreams, 
Let us say something between a rhombus and an oblate spheroid. Let us say, for the sake of argument, that nobody has worn a hexagonal hat, and that I appear in one with simple pride, and am really the object of remark or even of riot. There is still a further fact to be fancied in the matter, that the chances are considerably against the new but neglected type of headdress having anything to recommend it except its novelty. The conventional critic commonly refers to an old hat when he speaks of a shocking bad hat. But in truth the new hat would probably have to be a shocking bad hat since its only object is to shock. The mad hatter would have to be a bad hatter or at least the designer and creator of a bad hat, if only by the exhaustion of comparatively good hats. In other words, there is something in the very nature of novelty, or what some call progress, which tends to grow worse and worse. It not only becomes something lower, but especially something more limited. He who perpetually puts his head into newer and newer and newer hats is also putting his head into narrower and narrower holes. I have made the apologue crude in order to make it clear, and it is not more crude than some of the innovations in ethics and especially in aesthetics. A modern atheist is really discouraged from doing what has been done before, even if he can do it better, just as a fashionable woman might be discouraged from wearing an unfashionable hat even if she looked divinely beautiful in it. I have never understood why painters, whose work is in some ways more public and permanent than is all the flutter and litter of our written and printed sheets, should be so much more fussy and fastidious than we are in distinguishing between a flutter of new things and a litter of old ones. I do not understand why, while our own vulgar headlines remain comparatively fixed, like an epithet, their pictures are expected to change incessantly like a cinema. It is as if the painters had to keep pace with the popular phrase, which always calls a cinema the pictures. A young writer is not always painting to prove that he despises Swinburne's temple of Proserpina as a rubbish heap, or even that he has said farewell to it as a ruin. But a young painter is extraordinarily anxious to assure us that he has escaped from Whistler's peacock room as from a prison. A critic of public affairs is not necessarily ashamed of still being a socialist or a rationalist or a ritualist, but an artist in paint or marble will be in an agony if he is suspected of still being a post-impressionist when he ought to be a post-post-impressionist. It is not obvious why the painter should be so much afraid of being behind the times, while the poet can still retain his modest hope of being not for an age but for all times. But it can never be denied that one or two of the greatest of these pictorial innovators have an idea too subtle to be fairly compared to a grotesque fashion in hats. Behind their ambition there is an artistic theory, though I think an insufficient one, and it is not always the silly notion of novelty, but sometimes the noble idea of renewal. There are two senses in which an artist may work to awaken wonder. One is the basest and vulgarest kind of art, the other is the highest and holiest kind of art. 
The former is meant to make us wonder at the artist. The latter is meant to make us wonder at the world. Now, I do believe that a few men of genius, chiefly French, originally set out in a finer spirit to paint a three-legged stool in a startling fashion. They were cheap jacks and charlatans, if they only tried to startle us with the painting. But they were poets and prophets if they tried to startle us with the stool. Many of their sect have truly argued that much of the more primitive painting, such as the early medieval painting, has a convincing directness which is difficult even to disentangle from its faulty drawing or quaint perspective. There is an unconscious solidity about the furniture in some primitive pictures, because the three-legged stool is not standing on one leg to have its portrait painted. If it is out of drawing, it is, so to speak, caught out by accident. I suppose that the more genuine new artists set out to seize this quality, at once abrupt and absolute, and the only way they could draw the stool afresh was to draw it askew. But when all this is understood, touching the best of them, even the best are still the victims of a finer form of the same fallacy of fastidiousness. They are narrow even when they are new, because they arrive at novelty only by a process of exhaustion. It is in a literal and a double sense exhaustion, because it is fatigue. They are pricking and prodding to find the one live spot, as the old witch-finders pricked and prodded to find the one dead spot. But it is because most of the new victim is dead, as most of the old victim was alive. They are trying to find a new nerve of surprise, but that alone shows that the normal nerves are abnormally jaded. The difference between them and the medieval primitives is that they are not fresh minds appealing to other fresh minds, but stale minds appealing to other stale minds, even if the best of them are still making an effort to startle themselves out of their staleness. And I fancy any fair critic will be forced to find the distinction in the difference between the spiritual philosophy and the atmosphere of the two epochs. The medieval man had solidity in his creed as well as his craft. He had simplicity in his soul as well as his style. The primitive of the present day does not, after all, draw his stool as if he had left all other stools for lumber, not as if he had ever seen a stool before. He actually selects ugly things as the esthete in the last fashion selected beautiful things. He tries to be as crude as a simple man, and yet as superior as a sophisticated man, and so, to continue the metaphor, he falls between two stools. End of section 11. End of G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1919-1920, by G. K. Chesterton.